I believe this generation is overlooking the most authentic voice of all, and that's the voice of the Hebrew prophets. They predicted that as man neared the end of history as we know it, that there would be a precise pattern of events which would loom up in history. Nations would fit into a certain power pattern, and all of this would be around the most important sign of all, that is, the Jew returning to the land of Israel after thousands of years of being dispersed. The Jew is the most important sign to this generation. Al Lindsay, the late great planet Earth. Welcome, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi to talk about dispensationalism. Zellwin, how are you? I'm doing great, Willie. Things are going pretty well over here and enjoying some nicer weather. It's been kind of nice to get out and go on some long walks to kind of clear my head a little bit. So, you know, there there are advantages to when it's above freezing, I guess. <laughs> Certainly. Very windy here, but that's life on the... Uh... Midwestern Plains, I guess you could say. Chickens have not blown away. Weather's been gorgeous. You know, I've had to, but I've had to sit through a lot of meetings and stuff indoors, just looking longingly out the window, like a, like a cramped up school kid, just wanting to, wanting to get out into nature, you know, get out barefoot, get like, get some dirt on your feet or something. Everybody needs that. Everybody needs sunshine and, and that kind of thing. Sounds hippie, but it's really not. You know, let me, let me make that not hippie. Everybody needs to like eat red meat and liver outside with no shoes on. That's what I'm saying. Here I was picturing you, you know, frolicking with, you know, as a flower child. And now you're, you're trying to re- to repaint well, me. So. Well, you know, you know, Z, that's the funny thing. It's like, uh, so I have a beard and I have like big plastic rim glasses, but I have a beard because it's the right thing to do. And I have big glasses because they're easier to see in. And it makes me look like a certain sub subculture that I'm not really a part of. <laughs> so I, I i am not a hipster uh any flannel that i own i came by honest i'll just say that you know they took everything good zelwyn you can't even drink pbr anymore without uh without being associated with the group it's just very sad you know well, just just get yourself a pearl snap shirt and and right. you'll be good to go so well it's like when it's like when you show off your hello uh, kitty tattoo and everybody assumes that you're a weeb, right, Zelwyn? You know, I mean, it's, that's ridiculous. They should not assume that about you. <laughs> I'm not sure how you know this about me, Willie, but... <laughs> well, I always keep my files. So, But no, anyway, if you ever do see me live, folks, no, not a hipster. I just, I just, I just wear glasses, practical glasses. Maybe I should switch to, like, the insurance glasses, you know, the David Koresh special. Maybe that's the kind of glasses I should wear. I don't know. <laughs> the Dwight Schrute, if you want to, if you want to have a less uh, uh, incendiary, uh, incendiary rather uh, <laughs> joke there. I'm All right, it's, it's, getting, it's getting pretty hot this early <laughs> in the episode. So, well, you know, it it was kind of funny. I'm really glad that that you mentioned the quote in the beginning was how Lindsay's late great planet Earth because. I didn't want people to get the wrong idea about what kind of just what kind of podcast this is. <laughs> so we are talking about dispensationalism. You know, in the in the promo we used for this uh, to preview the episode was a picture of the greatest actor of our generation, Mr. Nicholas Cage. Not the bees, not the bees. And I just want to, yeah, and I just want to say I don't know which image we could more easily afford: the Nick Cage left behind or the Kirk Cameron left behind. 
<laughs> and where do, where do you where do you side on the issue? Which is the best left behind movie? Is it Kirk Cameron or is it Nick Cage? What do you think? Well, to be strictly honest, I haven't really seen either of them. But going strictly on the actors themselves, I would have to side with Nick Cage just because because he is you know the a wonderful actor. I mean, did you see his performance in you know in uh, Con Air and stuff like that? I mean, come on. Well, Con Air is a spiritual experience. Uh, what a, what an amazing film. He did ruin the Wicker Man, though, but that's True. okay. You know, the well, that's what we should do. If we ever decide to be really cool kids and start doing movie reviews, we're going to do, like, the original Wicker Man first. Um, because that movie is about the triumph of the Presbyterian faith over godless Scottish pagans. Until the end, of course, but... Well, spoiler alert, but you can argue with that, you know? You could, you could, you could make the case... I'm sorry, folks. We just spoiled a 50-year-old movie for you, and I, I'm very sorry about that. There, there's a statute of limitations to these things. I mean, <laughs> come on. <laughs> exactly. Right. So, uh, yeah, Nick Cage, love the man, great man, wonderful, terrible with money, not discerning when it comes to picking scripts, but he did star in the Left Behind remake. And uh, so <laughs> hopefully we don't, we don't have to take down the uh, the preview because of copyright or anything. It's not the catechism or anything, so don't worry about it. Um, well, anyway, yeah. So, but on that subject, you know, we're we're making a joke about the Kirk Cameron version of the movie and the Nick Cage version. But the reason why we're even talking about this is because of all the theologic, the Christian theological systems out there. This is the one that pop culture has really latched onto, perhaps second only to the concept of demonic possession, the the concept of the end times specifically the dispensationalist version, is what the popular American psyche has really latched onto. So that for those who don't know traditional Christianity, there are many Americans who assume that dispensationalism, which we will explain what it, what that means here shortly, but that system is the norm for historic Christianity. And that's why we're tackling this. This is, um, this is an erroneous system that is ahistorical and one that we need to contend with because even faithful Lutherans really speak in dispensationalist language a lot. So we're going to go through this. We're not even sure if we can do it all in an episode, but uh, we'll, we'll see how far we get. And if we need to break it up into two or three, uh, we can, we can do that. So we're going to talk about what dispensationalism is, the origins of it. We touched on that a little bit uh, with our CI Schofield episode. And you learn, you know, about the murky origins of, of that system and how Schofield popularized it, things like that. So we're going to look into that a little bit more in depth here as far as Darby and the other early uh, dispensational influences, all the way up through the modern movers and shakers in that movement. So, so all right, Zelwyn, what is dispensationalism? Yeah, that's the million-dollar question, isn't it? The first thing that I would say about dispensationalism is we you need to dis you need to not associate it immediately with the end times because dispensationalism is associated with a specific view of the end times but it is more than just how you understand the end times. Basically dispensationalism is a system of interpretation. It's a way of looking at the Bible with some very specific assumptions that we'll probably get to in this episode. And when you when you read the Bible with those assumptions in mind, 
it leads to certain conclusions that we're going to be talking about. So, yeah, it's really a hermeneutic. It's really a system of interpretation that has pop that has ingrained itself into the American psyche. And if we're not going to if, if we can take another word other than assumption, could we say presupposition? Sure. Yeah, no, I mean, assumption, presupposition, I, I, I mean, it's the same thing. You, you have a starting point, and this is where you go from here. I mean, right. everybody has this. You have, even we as Lutherans have presuppositions about what, you know, what, what we expect when we come to the Bible. That doesn't make them bad. It just means that this is how we go about interpreting it. Yeah, and if you have a, a correct presupposition, then it's fine. Right. <laughs> so... You know, this is this is going to be a touchy subject for a lot of people. There are a lot of sacred cows here, but before we get into into some of those <laughs> shooting dogs, as Zelvin likes to say, <laughs> let's talk about uh, the two most recognized features. Okay, so we're gonna let me get them out of the way, and then we'll talk about it more in depth. So the first is the seven dispensations. That's where dispensationalism gets its name from. So, so that's the first hallmark doctrine, and sometimes it's more, sometimes it's less dispensations, and then second will be the pre-tribulation rapture. Right. So, so the idea is that there's going to be a literal seven-year period of tribulation in, on the earth. Before that begins, Christians will be snatched out of that and will not have to suffer any of that, which right. is strange. We'll get into that more. If it feels absurd on the on the face of it, considering all of our Lord's warnings, but nevertheless, that's for a little bit later in the episode. First, let's talk a little bit about these dispensations. Well, okay. So you want to talk about the dispensations. Okay. And it, well, and, and how they arrive at them. So, okay. so what's the, so their first thing is going, they want to take the Bible literally is what they're going to say. Right. So they're reacting against the liberal theology of the day. They want to take the Bible literally, whatever that means. What's, what's the problem with saying that? Well, it's what do you mean by literal in this in this sense? You know, they they have a the dispensationalists have a very specific idea of what they mean by literal, and usually, like you say, it was it forged in reaction against a more modernizing kind of liberal uh, tendency. You know, in the early twentieth century, which everybody was reacting against. I mean, we've talked about it before on this podcast. And, you know, because the modernists were saying, you know, the Bible isn't something that we can take seriously anymore. The Bible isn't something we can trust anymore. You know, even that the Bible was erroneous. For that reason, the dispensationalists come along and say, no, we need to take the Bible literally to take it at face value unless we are compelled to do otherwise. So literal for a dispensationalist has to do with taking words in the most basic sense, unless you have a very specific reason to, to do otherwise. Now that, that sounds pretty good on its face. You know, we might even agree with that. And I think that's what makes this so attractive to conservative Christians, people who want to take the Bible seriously. But when they say literal in this sense, what they really mean is temple is going to mean temple in almost every case, in every prophecy, you know, Israel is going to mean Israel the national Israel. So it, it really comes down to what you might call a literalistic way of interpreting the Bible. And uh, yeah, one that sometimes does not consider genre. I mean, the other nuances of this now, and we don't want to present the Bible in such a way as if we would ever be accused of being uh, liberal or anything like that. Right. Uh, by no means. It's just to say that, you know, literal is just such a, a tricky word. 
Well, and maybe maybe the best way to put it too is is the dispensationalists would say that you know there are figurative expressions in the Bible. They'll agree with that. You know, contextually sure. you have to interpret it that way. But they are far less willing to say that things are types. They're types. They're, they're yeah. The they're, types and shadows are what they don't like. So you know you're going to get the thing like Israel. You know um, what is the you know the it's all going to boil down to how you view Israel the purpose and function of the Mosaic covenant or the Abrahamic covenant, how that's ultimately fulfilled where, you know, the traditional Christian interpretation say for the promise to Abraham is going to be that that's fulfilled in Christ. Right. They're still going to see it as quote unquote, literally fulfilled in the political nation of modern Israel. Right. Right. Because, because the figurative sense is, is so severely limited you know, they, they want to say that if God is going to fulfill something, he's going to do it literally, unless you have a very, 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 very specific reason to believe otherwise. Right. You know? And for them, there's almost no reason for that. So prophecy is always going to be fulfilled in this literal um, dispensationalist kind of way. So eschatolo- or just eschatologically, that's not the right word here. Um, certainly eschatologically, it's different, but covenantally. Uh, they conceive of things differently. Dispensationalism arises kind of as a reaction to reformed covenant theology. Okay, so when Darby is coming up, that's what he's going to be around more. How would dispensationalism define itself against reformed covenant theology? Well, okay, so the reformed covenant theology, it it should be an episode in itself. Which I realize is kind of, redundant you know to say reformed covenant theology covenant theology is Is by definition reformed yeah right right but i mean just for the sake of our audience who may not be familiar with this kind of terminology covenant theology is the belief that you know god has instituted certain covenants with man that's typically divided into two in covenant theology the covenant of works which was first presented to adam which you know he failed and was you know came to an end and now the covenant of grace, which is basically throughout the scriptures, this is what God is doing for us, ultimately fulfilled in Jesus Christ. So while the Reformed would say that there is progression within God's revelation, something that we could even agree with, uh, they w- they're not willing to say that God is you know, dividing it up into different dispensations or to different periods or whatever in which he does yeah. something different. So, so for the for in covenant theology, you've got the one covenant of grace that's continually recapitulated right. or renewed. For the dispensationalist, there's really not a great continuity between the Noahic covenant or the, you know, the covenant with Adam, covenant with Noah, covenant with Abraham, covenant with Moses. There right. are much sharper distinctions between those. It's to the point where... Schofield, for example, is going to define a dispensation as a time during which man is tested in respect to obedience to some specific revelation of the will of God. So seven such dispensations are distinguished in Scripture. You know, that's a, that actually might sound convincing to a lot of people on the face of it. And even most dispensationalists would probably agree, most you know reasonable ones would say, yeah, it's still, salvation is still by grace through faith, even in those, although admittedly some explicitly deny that uh, the problem is you know the bible presents this as working toward a specific goal namely the coming of christ right they're not they're not you know different eras beginning and ending on their own 
Right, right. And, well, and yeah, and, and like you say, with with the dispensationalist idea is that, like you say, these very sharp distinctions, even to the point of saying that, you know, very large portions of the Bible, in some sense, don't apply to us in Correct. a meaningful yeah. way. Yeah. And, you know, this was this was coming this was coming up in a lot of circles in the 19th century, especially restoration of circles. What do you do with the law? What do you right. do with the Old Testament? So you get Alexander Campbell kicked out of the Presbyterians and kicked out or leaves the Presbyterians kicked out of the Baptists basically for saying that the Old Testament law, including the Decalogue in no way applies to Christians. Right. Yeah. <laughs> he might sound like some Lutherans you've heard. Uh, <laughs> this is not an Alexander Campbell fan podcast. I want to be very clear with that. <laughs> I can only be charitable so far, Zelwyn. I know. I know. <laughs> so anyway, I'm... no, but this was popping up. In other in other circles, at the same time, might be coincidence, might not. Uh, that that's a hard historical thing to prove. N- nevertheless, yeah, to say that, yeah, there's nothing really to glean from this. You know, this is really the origin of where you get. It's almost like Marcionism coming up again. It rears its head. They, you know, a dispensationalist won't say it's a different God, but they will say that God is so fundamentally different in how He acts in the Old Testament in certain parts that there's really no application in the new Testament. I think, I think the best that you could say, I'm just, and again, I'm just trying to be fair here. You know, I'm, I'm, I'm the, the ironic one. You're the polemic one, you know, good, good cop, bad cop. But anyway, (laughs) we're going to do, we're going to do a bad cop, bad cop episode one day. (laughs) And it'll be glorious. Right. But the, the point is, is that they, they would say, you know, that it doesn't apply. That doesn't mean that we can't learn anything from it. It, it just means that ultimately you're, it's kind of like reading a history book. You know, you can kind of glean some general principles that probably still apply. But, you know, for Abraham, for example, that dis- dispensation and, and, you know, well, to be actually to be more specific, Noah and his dispensation, you know, all of that has come to an end. And so, you know, all we can really do is see how God has acted in that way and learn something about his glory. You know, Ryrie likes to emphasize God's glory in all of these things. I mean, it it really does come down to what applies to us today for the dispensationalist is everything, you know, like in the epistles. You know, that is the, the yeah. what is written to the church. That is what God has given for our instruction. And so they'll spend a lot of their time focusing on those things. Right. Yeah, and they really miss when they reduce the Old Testament down to a description of a political Israel. There are so many ethical things they miss out on. And more than that, they miss out upon the point of the Old Testament, which is the coming of Christ. Right. Fundamentally, we, we can end the episode on this if we wanted to, but fundamentally, the difference between dispensationalism and biblical Christi- and biblical Christianity is who or what is Abraham's seed? Right. And and that is also one of the major presuppositions, major, major assumption, whatever you want to call it, this sharp distinction between Israel and the church. It comes out of their literal, you know, dispensational, literal understanding of the Bible. And for that reason, Israel and the church in their understanding are never, can never be confused with one another. And I think that's going to drive a lot of what we're going to talk about probably in the, the next segment here. But as long as you keep that those ideas in mind, you know, that prophecy is going to be fulfilled in a dispensational, literal way. 
and that Israel and the church are distinct from one another, you have a, a pretty good handle on you know how they actually interpret the Bible. So we're coming up on our first break. On the other side of the break, we will talk about the seven dispensations. We're going to talk about the other hallmarks of dispensationalism. Just get get right into it. We'll be right back with more Word Fitly Spoken after this. A word fitly spoken is like apples of gold and pictures of silver. The fear of the Lord is the beginning of wisdom, and the knowledge of the Holy One is understanding. The Word, front and center, in doctrine, in history, in life. That's the mission of A Word Fitly Spoken. We've got more on the way. Stay tuned. We'll be right back. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. We're talking dispensationalism. All right. So we've talked a little bit about their their foundation. Uh, now let's get into it a little bit more. Let's go a little bit more in depth. So just to repeat some of the uh, fundamentals of dispensationalism, um, I'm going to borrow from Charles Ryrie. And uh, Zellin, tell us a little bit about who Ryrie is. Charles Ryrie is one of the primary representatives of a later school of dispensationalism. He's he's kind of one of the, the major figures in revised dispensationalism. He was very big, I believe, in the 80s, wasn't he? I mean, uh-huh. that was kind of his time. He's he's recently passed. I'm um, so he, I think, you know, within the past five years or so. But he, he was kind of important for really pushing forward some ideas of dispensationalism in kind of a, a slightly new direction. So he is, he's, he's an important figure. We should, we should pay attention to what he has to say. Yeah. So he's going to give his essential aspects of, you know, his essentials of dispensationalism, distinction between Israel and the church, mm-hmm. hermeneutic again of a literal interpretation, quote unquote. Mm-hmm. So that's to all areas of scripture and include, especially including prophecy and the glory of God as the underlying purpose of God in history. Right. So, you know, that's a tricky one. But ultimately for him, how is God glorified? Well, mostly in the nation of Israel. Uh, you right. really start to see that come out as this as this hermeneutical principle for them. So now that's what it has. So that those are his like, this is what makes dispensationalism. So your dispensations are wrong, according to him, if you don't have these things. So with that said, what defines a dispensation then? Well, Ryrie's specific definition of a dispensation is what he calls a distinguishable economy in the outworking of God's purpose. And now to kind of unpack that, because that's very condensed, distinguishable in the sense that, you know, you can distinguish one period from another, like they have to be different enough to be distinguishable. They're not muddled together. Economy in the sense of, or, or you could also translate that either as dispensation or even stewardship, 
the way God chooses to run his household at that particular time. That would be the second part of his dispensation. And then in the outworking of God's purpose has to do with like what you said with, you know, to God's glory, that he's doing these things for his own specific reasons, for his own specific glory. And man may or may not be part of that glory. You know, it, it, I mean, because you have some time periods where hardly anybody is saved and you have some time sure. periods where, you know, there's quite a few who are saved. And this is all to God's glory. Yeah. Really, I think if you really want to break down dispensations among all dispensationalists, it really comes down to those basic things. So the first thing would be, again, the stewardship. You know, God is acting towards man in a very specific way. You know, this is the way he's choosing to run things. You have man's responsibility within that dispensation. Man is given a certain command or a certain arrangement he's expected to follow. There's usually like a representative figure in that time period as well, sometimes even just a single man. We'll talk about this a little bit more. I mean, this is all to set up when we talk about the seven dispensations. You have the revelation that goes with it. You know, God actually says something new. And that's what sets up that dispensation. And the result of each of these, and this is true of all of them, including the seventh, when we'll get to that here in just a minute, there is a test that happens. There's always a failure that happens. And there's also a judgment that comes as a result of it. Okay, this this is always something that happens within a dispensation. If you take the first one, for example, you know, Adam was given a test. He failed that test and ju- the judgment of death was laid upon man. So, I mean, it's always this, you know, test failure judgment is part of the dispensation as well. This is language you're going to hear all the time when you, you listen to dispensationalists. Which, for a lot of our listeners, is going to sound perfectly reasonable. Sure. And yet, what the dispensationalist is doing is saying things are fundamentally different in each dispensation. Right. You know, and it gets... It, it's not based upon covenants either. It's And it's not quite arbitrary, but basically they take narratives and kind of decide what the dispensations are. You know, sure. if, it were, if it were covenants, I think that they would have a stronger case because God is establishing these covenants. Right. You know, and very clearly in Scripture. The, the problem is, I mean, where do you, okay, Adam in the garden, I can get you. But Jacob, <laughs> you know, that's a tricky one. Um, that's not how... <laughs> Um, and, you know, in older translations, you'll have the word dispensation used, but it's not ever, ever like this. I mean, to make that, you know, to make Jacob something wholly different from <laughs> some of his ancestors, or, I mean, excuse me, from some of his, uh, you know, from some of his offspring is a little, that's stretching the text a little bit, wouldn't you say? Well, and I think the one that kind of surprised me, because I, I, I think I encountered this in Ryrie, actually, was the idea that Jacob going down to Egypt was actually the the failure within his dispensation that Jacob had somehow failed the test that had been set to him set before him because he was supposed to stay in the land that was his test and he ended up failing it by going down to Egypt I'm like I I don't I don't see how that is how that squares with what scriptures say I just don't I mean cuz God says you know I'll be with you and I'm going to bring you back up again I mean, how can that be a failure? I mean, so it it does, in some sense, become to us maybe a little bit arbitrary, but they do have their reasons for dividing things the way that they do. Right. Well, let's talk a little bit then about the dispensations. And this will sound a bit like they're following the covenants, but 
as you see, like with the Jacob thing, it's not, it's not always that cut and dry. Right. You know, and, and they're not always going to disagree on this, but these, these are the big ones. So do you want to get into those? Sure. Typically, not always. And the language is not always the same. You know, they, they, they disagree on what exactly to call these, but the most common division is a sevenfold division that, that goes like this. You have the first dispensation, which is what they call innocency or the dispensations of innocence. This is Adam prior to the fall. Okay. So, you know, at that time, the, the what was given to the, the way that God was acting towards man, you know, is that he had a certain expectation of him. Adam failed in that expectation. And as a result, you know, we fell into sin. So you can see how that how that goes. The second dispensation is what they call the dispensation of conscience. This is from Adam all the way up until the time of Noah. I think this is also sometimes called the, the uh, dispensation of, of the patriarchs, isn't it? Yeah. Or is that? Oh, okay. I mean, you, you've, you've actually seen some of this stuff up, up close and personal. So correct me if I'm wrong on any of it. Yeah. Well, I mean, that's how you get into the Jacob stuff, like you were talking about. Right. Uh, so it's almost like many dispensations within the broader dispensation. Right. But anyway, the, the course, you know, is the test here would be, you know, I, well, I'm not sure what the actual test is, but the failure in this case, of course, results in the flood. You know, that the, 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 the sons of God become intermarried with the sons of man. And so they fail the dispensation and the judgment is the flood. So again, right. Genesis see- six episode will have it, by the way. <laughs> well, yeah, you, you've been hankering for it for a while. So. Uh, the, the third dispensation is the one they call civil government. This is the period after the flood until Abraham, which, I mean, honestly, is kind of an interesting one because the Bible spends all of what, like three chapters on this time period. <laughs> right. I, I'm, I'm not even sure how you would divide this all up, to be honest. But the fourth is one we're more familiar with, the, the dispensation of promise. This would be the period from Abraham until Moses. The fifth would be the uh, dispensation of law, the Moses, all the way to the ascension. That's an important point to make here. The fifth dispensation ends at the ascension because the test that was presented was the offer of the Davidic kingdom to the Jews. The Jews failed that test. They rejected the offer of the kingdom. And as a result, uh, we have the beginning of a new dispensation. The, the judgment that comes upon them is the partial hardening in, in their way of thinking. And now we have the sixth dispensation, the one that we are currently living in, in their way of thinking, which is the dispensation of grace, also known as the time of the church. Yeah, and notice the subtle danger here, that the church only exists because the nation of Israel rejected Christ. Right. Had they be- had they believed there would be no church. Right. Right. Now, they would say, you know, well, we can't that'd be like asking the question, you know, what would happen if Adam never sinned? You know, they think of it as a question that you can just never answer. But at right. the same time, it is a very subtle danger. Yeah, and that's but this is how you get into that emphasis on Israel because you know, up through this fifth dispensation, the whole point was never the gospel going to the world. The whole purpose of the coming of the Savior was only for that nation. Right. 
And that's going to be important when we get to the seventh uh, dispensation too. But I, I do want to point out here in the sixth dispensation, the dispensation of grace, the church is something that exists only in this dispensation. Yeah. It, it is not something in their thought that has existed since, you know, the first promise to Adam. It is not something that has, you know, gone on in various ways and, and, you know, names throughout history. It is something that only exists in this time. And it is something that will cease to exist at the end of this dispensation. Now, I think that is something that is extremely dangerous. On this rock I build my church, and the gates of hell will not prevail against it, but the sixth dispensation will. Yeah. Or the seventh dispensation will. <laughs> right. <laughs> so, I mean, it, it, it really is, and I think this is the part where we would probably become quite a bit more polemic, and for good reason, because you essentially have turned the church into a kind of, well, sometimes it's presented as a plan B. Yeah. You know, that this was not God's intention from the beginning. Yeah. And you'll notice that we're not focusing on, like, the secret rapture as much in this episode. Although we can get into it a little bit later. But that's kind of the the most pop culture thing about it. Right. You know, that's like the, you know, Kirk Cameron is a, is a pilot or Nicolas Cage is a pilot. And, uh-oh, all the people got, all the Christians on the plane got secretly raptured out. You know, that's, but that's not this distinction between Israel and the church is the real danger here. You know, th- this is the real error in dispensationalism. Yeah, no, I, I, I firmly agree with that because if you draw such a hard line between the two, you end up with some pretty strange conclusions. And uh, one of which I think maybe it's just kind of a way of, of wrapping up the, the sixth dispensation here is that the, the test uh, and failure of this dispensation is going to result in a great apostasy. Basically, the church will come to effectively nothing in their way of thinking. And as a result, what little is left of it will be taken away in the rapture and when the church comes to an end. Okay. So the judgment which is coming upon this dispensation, the time of the church, would be the end, what we would call the end times, you know, the, the seven year tribulation period, you know, and all the debate that goes on around that. So in other words, they are looking for the beginning of that time period as the end of th- this dispensation. And what it really causes these, these Christians who fall, you know, or, who are led astray by this understanding to put their hope on is not so much, you know, the, that Christ being in the world is not so much, you know, even Christ reigning as so much as a hope of escape from the present evil age. Right. And so they're not looking to Christ. They're looking to headlines. They're looking to red heifers being born and other things like that. They're looking toward the building of a, of a new temple as or hydroponic uh, technology being used to make uh, the desert in Israel flourish as a hope and as a sign of uh, the rescue to come rather than looking at the finished work of Christ. And I know I got a little weird with the references there and maybe we can unpack some of those, but that, that's what you have there. And this is, if we, if time permits, we're going to talk a little bit about the eighties and how Lindsay and what this looked like, but basically their, their strength is coming from the newspaper. Right. Well, and especially the strength is coming from the physical nation of Israel today. Correct. Yeah. I, I think it's very, very telling. John Hagee, who is a very popular 
dispensationalists these days, he actually pins his hope and he frequently repeats a statement that he says, Israel lives. That's his hope. Well, he usually says, Israel lives, to be fair. Well, to be fair. (laughs) But now we're getting a little too technical. Uh, but, But he's pinning his hope not so much in the finished work of Christ, but in the fact that there is still a Jewish nation which yeah. I think says something about how this causes these people to to view yeah. the world. And what it does is then then that pins that, that pins uh, a lot of your theology on a political nation and makes you morally or, or conscience bound to that nation and whatever they do. Right. To the point where they will say that they can do nothing wrong. Oh yeah. Oh yeah. I mean, if um, I had the the pleasure, if you want to call it that, of, of reading through Hagee's book, most recent book, as a preparation for this. I mean, yeah. I mean, Israel has literally done nothing wrong ever. There's, they've. I don't think they'd even. If you're reading Hagee and you hadn't read the Bible, you wouldn't even know that they had fallen under a, a hardening. Right. Right. <laughs> he wouldn't even go that far. I mean, I mean he he. He basically says that they're saved by being Jewish. More or less. More yeah. or less. I mean, I don't know. You know, I I don't really believe in justification by anonymous faith, to be honest, Zellin. You know, I believe that to be saved, you have to have explicit faith in Jesus Christ, because I believe that the Bible says, how can they call on whom they have not heard, and how can they hear without a preacher? So that if we are not preaching the the exclusivity of salvation in Christ. And I don't mean just that, oh, no, they're saved by Christ, but, they, you know, they don't really know it. I don't believe that. Roman Amen. Catholic Catechism says that, too, and I don't believe that because I'm not a Roman Catholic. And so the dispensationalists, are like, or a hanky style, I mean, they basically say this. You know, that that's how they want to weasel around it. Well, no, they could be ultimately be saved by Christ, but it's like there is no but. Once you've put but on saved by Christ, you you've you've thrown the gospel away, right? And and you've robbed it of its of its power, and so this is this is a dangerous place to to find oneself, and and very it's very disturbing. You know, symbols and imagery are important, and and when you look at some of these modern dispensationalists, you only see political imagery on their I want to say chancel, but that's on their stages. You see stars of David, you see uh, American flags and eagles and shofars and things like that you you don't see crosses too much and if you do see a cross you don't see the savior hanging on it and to me that's very telling sure you know they're they want they want to be very clear where they are or you know you know they're really very clear in in where they are theologically i mean yeah no absolutely and and that they are pinning their hope in this way i think is also telling when they say that a Jew, for example, an ethnic Jew who comes to believe in in Christ, you know, the way that we would say, actually forfeits his blessings, which he is going to, which he is privileged to as as a result of his birth. That he 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 partakes in the blessings given to the church, but not the blessings which are going to be given to Israel. Right, and you know, um, a lot of Messianic Judaism is tied up in this although not a lot of it, but there is some fascination with Jewish trappings. Mm-hmm. And it's also ahistorical. A lot of what we of what people think is biblical Judaism is uh, later, much, much later than the New Testament era. So it's, it, it's not even close to representing Second Temple Judaism. 
Uh, it's rabbinic Judaism, okay, but it's more properly Talmudic Judaism. And so, but we won't go too much further into that on this episode. I'll leave that at that. But suffice it to say, you you have this Talmudic Judaism represented in a lot of dispensationalism, and it's represented in a lot of Messianic Judaism to some degree, and it's it's represented in uh, like something I don't understand, and that is Christian churches practicing Seder meals, and the Seder meals, the Seder liturgy that they'll use is basically Middle Ages at best. And so the problem is, though, people see like prayer shawls and shofars and things like that and think, oh, this must be the religion of Jesus, and so surely we would protect this. But it's not the religion of Jesus. In many cases, it was formulated precisely against 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 absolutely. I'm glad you said it. Yeah, <laughs> I punted it, and you took it. You caught it. Yes. I caught it. <laughs> yeah, it was formulated explicitly against uh, Christians, and so that's something we need to remember because we are trying to guard the faith against any kind of intrusion, and so anything that would obscure the person and work of Christ must be examined and must be refuted. And I believe that the dispensational system does this. On the other side of the break, I do want to talk about the seventh dispensation. We haven't gotten to it yet. I'll suffice it to say that, of course, is the millennium. And I think that deserves more than just a minute. So I think we should go to break. Okay, right. We'll be, we're going right to the break right now. But before we go, a reminder that Lutherans cannot be millennials. Okay, <laughs> drop that bomb. We'll be right back after this. The Word of God is living and active, sharper than any double-edged sword. The Word of God is the center of our faith life. Join us every Thursday for a new podcast available on iTunes and your favorite podcasting app. Follow us on Twitter at WordFitly. Check us out on Facebook, facebook.com slash WordFitly. And check out our website, wordfitlyspoken.org. We thank you for listening and stay tuned for more WordFitly Spoken. Welcome back, everyone. You are listening to A Word Fitly Spoken. I'm Willie Grills here with Zell and Heidi. If you're here in the third segment, we have not been shut down yet. <laughs> so we've uh, we've talked about six dispensations, but now we need to talk about the most significant. That would be the millennium. Right. Zell and tell us about the millennium. All right. So, yeah, so the seventh dispensation following the dispensation of grace, you know, the time of the church is what they call the dispensation of the millennium. OK, so this is the a literal, a dispensational literalistic interpretation of Revelation chapter 20. Speaking of the, the thousand year reign of Jesus Christ, they take that to mean a literal 1000 year period. And what that means is that every promise that God made to ethnic Israel is going to be literally fulfilled in the millennium. So all the promises of the land, 
will be literally fulfilled in the millennium. All the promises of them ruling over their enemies will be literally fulfilled in the millennium. Basically, everything that God promised in the Old Testament, understood in this dispensational, literal way, will come to pass in and only in the millennium. That's the most basic, I think, understanding of what the millennium is. And yes. the other the other part that I should emphasize here, too, is that it also, first of all, is not the end of days. Okay, It is a 1,000-year period of a literal kingdom, a physical kingdom on earth. And it also has its own period of testing, failure, and judgment. You know, that when Satan is released at the end, according to this literal understanding, at the end of the millennium, there will be a great falling away and there will also be a corresponding failure and a corresponding judgment which will come. And at the end of that dispensation, this 1,000-year period, will come eternity, will be the, the end of time. Yes. It's a physical, earthly time period. It is not you know, the church in glory or, or, you know, or something like that. It is literally a 1,000-year period in which the national Israel, the Jews, will reign with Christ being visible among them. And, you know, possibly some Gentiles who happen to, uh, to a belief, who have come to faith after the rapture, right. but before all this other thing came out. But, but mostly it's about a new Jewish kingdom. Right. It's a political kingdom. When Jesus says, my kingdom is not of this earth, <laughs> these guys are like, oh, come on. He didn't mean that. <laughs> now, now, we do affirm that the new heavens and the new earth will be joined together in the end times. We do believe that. So in that sense, yeah, you know, Jesus will have, quote unquote, earthly kingdom. But it is not this political empire like what you see in this scheme. Right. And, and what this has led to are all kinds of political ramifications and other things. It's It's really quite interesting and if not depressing to see it get played out in real time in our own lives right so like we said we're not focusing on like disproving the secret rapture that's not our focus although we can let me just do that really quickly the verses that say that two are in a field and one is taken and the other is left standing well in the rapture scheme they're like see so the faithful one is left or is, is taken up. Well, the problem is, in biblical language, the one who is taken is not the one who is saved. It's the one who is taken in judgment. Right. Okay, so that's the historical understanding of that. Right. So that's rapture bubble burst. That's the best I can do. You don't want to be the one taken up in that context. Well, and it's it's also interesting that virtually every passage in the New Testament that we would associate with the resurrection um, at the end of days, they right. associate with the rapture. Yeah, yeah. So going up to meet Jesus as in, during his second coming is treated as this secret. Like Jesus, it's almost like in, in mainstream dispensationalism, Jesus has like a half second coming right. in the rapture. <laughs> and I think maybe it would be worthwhile to really break down like the eschatology of this, you know, talk about the rapture at more length, maybe probably in a different episode. But I think... When, we, when we're talking here about the millennium, again, it is this understanding of an earthly kingdom. You know, David's kingdom in its full realization, what it was always supposed to, quote unquote, literally be, is now coming to fulfillment with Jesus reigning on an earthly throne. Right. Okay. So, again, earthly, physical, 
literal, quote unquote, you know, this dispensational literal, you know, and but it's for the Jews. That's the millennium in the dispensational understanding. Right. The church is long gone. We're not a part. We wouldn't be a part of it anymore. And this is not any kind of hope that we can look forward to. Right. Well, Zelwyn, we've got uh, 15 minutes left in the episode, so let's 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 do some refutation. All right. So I think the first thing that I would emphasize when talking to dispensationalists is to not be very. How do I want to put this? I don't want you don't want you to misunderstand me either. To not make it personal, because every time you read dispensationalists who are going against their critics or whatever, and if their critics say some kind of you know personal attack against them. The dispensationalist is always going to understand that as being proof that he is essentially right. Okay. This is, you know, because like if you read Ryrie's book, for example, something that I did find useful, but it has this kind of kind of whining quality to it that I kind of really found off putting. You know, well, we don't really say that, you know, it's just, it's like, okay, I get it. You know, but if you really want to go after dispensationalists, you do need to be more specific in your attacks. And that's kind of what we're talking about here. Right. Yeah. So anyway, I think there's a few passages in particular that would be helpful for this. Willie, what's the first one of these? Uh, Well, you're going to want to go to Amos. That's your favorite book. It Um, is true. Yes. You have that, uh, you know, you just have that scrawled on the walls of your tar paper shack that you record from. And uh, you know what? I like it. I like your aesthetic. It's wholesome. It's wholesome, fam. It really is. It really is. Um, everything is heirloom and natural in your in your shack and on your property. Uh, now, Amos 9, 11 to 15 does deal with the restoration of Israel. Well, if the Bible says Israel will be restored, and well, what do we make of that? Is there anything in the New Testament that could possibly clarify this? Well, and with the case of Amos 9 in particular, with the, the rebuilding of the, the tent of David, which has fallen down, which, of course, is the, the, the reference there, uh, James actually specifically quotes this in Acts 15. Yes. Okay. Uh, he, when talking at the Jerusalem Council, talking about, you know, what should we do about the Gentiles who are coming into the church, James quotes this there as a way of saying, see, this is what is happening in fulfillment of what Amos said long ago. The tent of David is being rebuilt. Right. Now, the the dispensationalist is going to say, well, what James actually meant was that it's just starting to be fulfilled, you know, because it's still waiting its quote-unquote literal fulfillment, you know, because the, the tent of Israel, or the tent of David hasn't really, quote-unquote, been rebuilt again because the 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 Jewish kingdom isn't here yet. Yeah, it's funny because the whole context of Acts 15 is, what do we do with the Gentiles? Right. And James says, well, this is what Amos was talking about. This is the whole point. Right. You know, we are seeing this fulfilled, so don't bother the Gentiles. They are just as much a part of the church. Or, or to, Hold on, let's use this language. They are just as much God's people as these uh, the Jewish believers in the church at the time. Yeah, the two have become one, to quote Paul. Yeah. Exactly. (laughs) But you only arrive at the dispensationalist conclusion if you've already presupposed that there's going to be this geopolitical kingdom. And if you presuppose that Israel and the church are always and forever distinct. And if you presuppose the whole point is not the salvation of the earth, 
but this essentially this millennial kingdom fulfilling right. the Jews. Right. Yeah. yeah. So yeah, so you can see how this all builds together. But if you read Acts 15, I think it's pretty clear that James is saying, like you said, Willie, no, guys, this is being fulfilled. We are seeing the fulfillment right now. And that's and that's why we can not bother the Gentiles with becoming Jews. Right. Uh, one of the other big things they're going to use is uh, Romans 11. Mm-hmm. So tell us a little bit about Romans 11. I mean, that that is one that can be very tricky to navigate. Right. At the very end of Romans 11, Romans 11, chap, uh, Romans 11, verse 26, it says, in this way, all Israel will be saved. And for the dispensationalists, they would basically say what that means is, is all ethnic Israel will be saved as a result. Yeah. OK, and the way that they make this case is, well, Israel, the word Israel in Romans 11 up to this point has meant exactly that ethnic Israel. You know, what do we do with Israel according to the flesh? It, you know, what do we do with the ethnic it, it, with the ethnic Jews? You know, can right. they be saved? Well, we would say, well, what Paul is saying here is all Israel in the sense of all Israel, that is the church, because the whole point of Romans 11, and feel free to unpack this some more, Willie, is that the only way that the Jews will be saved, the individual Jews, is if they come to believe in Jesus. Correct. So what you have is, Paul says, what then? Did Israel fail to obtain what it was seeking? And Paul says the elect obtained it, but the rest were hardened. Right. They are hardened because of their unbelief. Paul is going to say God has not rejected his people whom he foreknew. And he quotes Elijah, how he appeals to uh, God against Israel. Lord, they have killed your prophets. They have demolished your altars, and I am alone and, and left, and they seek my life. But God's reply to him is, I have kept myself 7,000 men who have not bowed the knee to Baal. So it seems very clear that, yes, Jews who believe in Jesus Christ will be saved. But the confusion comes in when he says, like, in this way, all Israel will be saved. Well, he's saying that this is how the Bible is going to do this. In what sense is is Israel saved as far as ethnic Israel? Insofar as they believe in Christ. He's going to talk about then the full inclusion of the Gentiles and the the full inclusion of of the Jews here. But there's no honest way of reading this where you come out with every uh, Jew is saved. It says that they are hardened so that the Gentiles may come in. And this right. is this is a, a dispensationalist argument that moves many. He says, so that they're hardened so that the Gentile until until the fullness of the Gentiles come in. A partial hardening has come upon Israel. And I have heard dispensationalists actually say this that those who are hardened, now remember they are hardened because of their unbelief, cannot be damned hmm. because that is unjust. Hmm. So that God hardens these Jews so that they won't believe, but then saves them so that he can, so that some Gentiles might believe. That is some really pro certain ethnicity kind of hermeneutical hoops to jump through. Pharaoh has entered the chat. I mean, well, this was, this was the objection that I raised and, (laughs) and and they're like, well, he wasn't Jewish. Wow. Okay. And and then they came back with, you know, because the text also says, well, who has been his counselor? And they're like, well, see, you're trying to be God's counselor. It's like, I'm, I'm just trying to let, I'm just trying to let the Holy Ghost speak, man. I don't know what to say. <laughs> because Romans 11 also says, for God has consigned all to disobedience that he might have mercy upon all. Yeah. Well, we know de facto that not every Jew who ever lived is going to be saved because what do you have? 
I have kept for myself 7,000 who have not bowed the knee to Baal. Well, that means that there are a lot of other unbelieving people of Israel who did bow the knee to Baal. They're not kept to God. Uh, Judas, for example, that's a, that's a Jew whose salvation I'm not so optimistic about. The son of perdition, I think he's called. Yeah. yeah so, so if we can find any example of a, of a Hebrew, we'll say a Hebrew Jew, and I don't want to get into that debate this episode, but, you know, <laughs> of someone who was once part of Israel, who is now no longer part of Israel and cut off from salvation, well, then that means that Romans 11 cannot possibly teach the universal salvation of every yeah. uh, Israeli. You know, and and I I will admit that the language, especially toward the end, the middle and end of Romans 11 can become very confusing. But it only becomes confusing if you let this ethnicity thing become the guiding hermeneutic and not Christ and not a a gospel that is meant to be universal. Universal in application, not in scope. Well, and that salvation is by faith in Christ, too, not just because, you know, they are, quote unquote, sons of Abraham or something. Yeah, and I, and I still, all these years later, and I've told a similar story about these people that I've heard before, too, and in, in maybe even in the Schofield episode, you know, where they basically just said that to say that Jews were not saved by being good Jews was a lie from hell. Yeah, you did say that in the Schofield episode. Yeah, but. that was like when the Saxon began to hate moment for me. That was, uh, <laughs> uh, you know, it was a, sometimes you find yourselves in weird rooms, you know, and, uh, <laughs> and all kind of, every, every, every other day of my life, it's like a David Lynch short film. And, uh, but anyway, so the point is, so people can be led astray by, uh, you know, Romans. I mean, Romans 11 is a very big one. Uh, for them, but if you if you read it uh, with any bit of discernment, you'll see that it, it's not possibly saying what they say it is, and right. and it really seems that the engrafting pertains to individual Jews who are put back in by faith in Christ. Absolutely, you know. So we are one tree, you know. We're branches and all growing out of Christ. So, well, I mean, not all of you know the ethnic Gentiles, if you want to use that language, are part of the tree either. Right. So it's oh, yeah, yeah. The, the whole body of Gentiles and the whole body of Israel are not going to be saved just because they are. Right. But but for the dispensations, they're going to say, well, the Gentiles don't have these specific promises. Right. And I'm like, well, let's go all. Well, Genesis three seems to disagree. <laughs> you know, uh, that gospel is given to our mother and our father. You know, the gospel has been from the beginning before even even the other covenants. The purpose of those other covenants, specifically the Abrahamic covenant and the Mosaic covenant, is to guard the people of Israel for the sake of the coming of Jesus Christ. Right. Every prophecy ultimately finds its fulfillment in Jesus Christ. Period. Period. <laughs> I don't even I'm not even going to defend it more. Either either Christ <laughs> is your guiding principle or you're buying John Hagee or remainder John Hagee books and leaving a bus stops for people to read or something like that. So, um, all right. Well, last few minutes, let's talk about Galatians a little bit. Yeah. The, the last one that I would point to is Galatians six sixteen, which is at the very end of Galatians, of course. And, uh, what is it? Peace be upon, on um, the church and, and upon the Israel of God, I think is how it goes. Am I, am yes. I right in that? Yes. Yes. Okay. Basically, what the dispensationalist is saying is that because Paul says upon the church, 
and upon the Israel of God, see, that shows that there's a distinction between church and Israel, because why would Paul separate them otherwise? And to which I would say, that's a very odd thing to say in a book like Galatians. (laughs) Right. I mean, because you just got done through this whole epistle talking about how there is neither Jew nor Greek, no male nor female, you are all one in in Christ Jesus. And then Paul at the very end is going to decide, oh yeah, by the way, you Jews get a special shout out at the end. What? (laughs) It doesn't make any sense. And, and it's, it's really, it's a really just, all this hinges upon the word Kai. Right. (laughs) You know, and well, it can also be also, you know, there's just even, there's just so many different ways you could translate this and there's no natural way of rendering it that, that, where you end up with the dispensational system. Right. Yeah. So those those would be the kind of arguments that I would level against uh, dispensationalism. Of course, there's many, many more. Uh, you could spend a lot of time, you know, studying these things and preparing for these things. But I think if you just focus on those issues of interpretation and especially those specific passages to interpret, I think you will find a very, you know, a very fruitful way of engaging with these people. So, yeah, Absolutely. It might not always be the most pleasant conversation. You might end up with a bunch of chick tracts or something in your in your <laughs> mailbox. I don't know. There's some. I mean, yeah. I, it it is what it is. And like I said, it is a system that seems very convincing to a lot of people. And a lot of people, especially when they see attacks on dispensationalism, this is why I started the way that I did. They're going to see it as kind of proof that they're on the right track because you know the world hates you, kind of a thing. Or right. You know, it's so it is it's going to be a very delicate conversation. I get that. But at the same time, it's not one that we can just idly, you know, sit by and do nothing about. Yeah. And ultimately, you're contending for Christ. Right. When you do this, this is ultimately not a debate about politics or anything like that. It's a debate about Christ, the scope of his atonement, the purpose of his coming and so on and so forth. And Gentile dispensationalists are going to believe that they are saved by faith alone in Christ. And that's good for them. But the system itself de-emphasizes that and even obscures it for a whole certain ethnicity, for an entire ethnicity. Right. And you don't want to be a part of that. And you don't want to be a part of of a system that completely uh, just distorts plain biblical passages. If you're if you're living in a system that makes you regret that you were not born ethnically Jewish, I think you have some problems. I mean, to be I mean, just being strictly honest here, the fact that they are exalting this you know particular group over the expense of all others just because of their you know ethnic identity shows that there is something that is fundamentally flawed about the system. I really I really mean that. Absolutely. Well, very good, Zelwyn. Any final words before we wrap up? No, I, th- I think we've we've said enough. I mean, we're going to come <laughs> back. We're going to come back to this again, probably talk about uh, their eschatology, maybe a little bit more detail. I think would, at the same time would also be helpful to talk about specific dispensationalists and, uh, you know, dealing like with Hagee, for example, or or dealing with uh, LaHaye or, you know, even dealing with Lindsay or something like that, you know, to kind of see how they approach things. But I think we've laid a pretty good groundwork for our whole discussion here. Right. And, you know, we've got some really fun episodes coming up here in the near future. I'm not going to, I don't think we should reveal the topics just yet, but 
but I think our audience is really going to like what's coming down the pike. So, good yeah, stuff. I think so. Well, thanks a lot, Zellin. This has been a Word Fitly Spoken. If you like what you heard, want to know more, check us out, wordfitlyspoken.org, facebook.com slash wordfitly, or Twitter at wordfitly. I'm Willie Grills here with Zellin Heidi. God love you, and God bless. This Jesus God raised up, and of that we are all witnesses, being therefore exalted at the right hand of God, and having received from the Father the promise of the Holy Spirit, he has poured out this that you yourselves are seeing and hearing. For David did not ascend into the heavens, but he himself says, The Lord said to my Lord, Sit at my right hand until I make your enemies your footstool. Let all the house of Israel therefore know for certain that God has made him both Lord and Christ, this Jesus whom you crucified.